Hello, all you killer kudzus out there. This is another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, sustainability, and conservation. I'm one of your hosts, Casey, and I'm joined once again by the wonderful Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hello. I think this is actually our first like neg of an opening. Sorry, guys. Uh, killer kudzu maybe isn't the most positive way to address our uh, our crowd out <laughs> hey, there. Killer, but- killer can be a compliment. Oh, I agree. I think it's like, yeah, it's definitely kind of a, you know, a jazzy, like kind of badass way of, of addressing our audience, I guess. But anyway, hi. (laughs) And if you don't know what kudzu is, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hi Casey. How are you doing? I am doing all right. We're still in house hunting land. Um, and it's Valentine's day and I've been around a lot of flowers today. So happy Valentine's day. Happy Valentine's Day. It won't be when y'all are listening to this, but hope Happy you had a good Valentine's one. <laughs> <Day. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. We're and we're happy you're here. Um, Casey, I, I don't I don't know if I, if I have anything particularly exciting for the week either. What was our homework from last week? Our homework was to go on the IUCN red list right. and look up your favorite species. Cause we talked about what a species is and learning about their conservation a little bit. So Sarah, what is your favorite species that you may or may not have looked up? I did. I did not. I did not look up anything on IUCN, although I have used the IUCN red list website extensively in the past. And I have absolutely looked up my favorite species before i've said this on the podcast before tigers it's cliche it's not that exciting it's not an unusual animal but tigers are my favorite animal and yes i've looked them up a lot we talked about them in our species episode they are one where the classification and the breakdown of the subspecies of tiger has been the subject of debate over the years I did want to say, because I haven't posted this yet either, if you listened to last week's episode on what is a species, Casey asked me what my favorite scientific name was of an animal, and then I forgot. We forgot to answer it, and and like I said, I was going to. And the answer is still really that I just don't have one. The, The one thing that I thought about when you asked me the question, but I didn't say because it's not a species name, it's a family, is Salticidae. Jumping I don't know spiders. what that is. Jumping, spiders. jumping spiders. And I've always oh. liked it because it, it's a, it's from a, a Latin word, but I knew in Spanish that to jump is saltar. And so it, I always appreciated that the jumping spiders were salticidae. And there is a species of jumping spider. I did have to look this up. I didn't know it, but I think it's the zebra jumping spider is uh, salt. Salticus senicus or something like that. And I thought that that was delightful because it still has that saltar. Yeah, uh, that's a nice in there. And then, it. yeah, it just sounds good to, st- to say. And it's like the senicus part is, I think, comes from another Latin word that's like about being vibrant or showy or something like that, which is also appropriate. So oh, jumping spiders are wonderful. Um, yeah. Hey, if you're out there being like, who has a favorite scientific name? Very few people. So don't feel like that's out there. <laughs> Do not. This came up at work. 
in the past really? week since we and not from people who listen to the podcast. They were they were just some of my coworkers were having conversations about cool scientific names, and I was like, I just I really enjoy being around <laughs> these people right now. So we're not alone, Casey. We're not, we're not alone. alone. We're not alone. Hey, Still throw out your favorite scientific names. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I assume that it's a pretty small um, party to attend in that case. But uh, I, my favorite animals, Sumatran orangutan. I looked them up, even though I've been on their page <laughs> many a many a time. Um, one of the cool things we didn't talk about the IUCN red list is that those pages are actually updated decently frequently. Like we're not talking about like every couple of weeks or anything like that, but normally every couple of years uh, for a lot of these species, there will be an mm-hmm. update. And so you'll see conservation statuses change as more information comes in. You'll see kind of better information about their range. So if you're ever curious, if you're like, I know everything there is to know about uh, a jumping spider, uh, you could look on there and see it. I'm sure that there are jumping spider species on the red list. Because there are, although the zebra spider is not one of them. I did look that up. Oh, see, I'm proud of you. You you did more homework than, than can generally be expected. Um, I did see from a couple episodes ago that you got your compost bin. I got my compost bin. Yeah. So I'm going to have to start like sharing compost updates. I feel like Please. semi-regularly. What I've learned so far is that composting is going to tr- uh, hopefully teach me to be patient because since I put my stuff out there, it's like every day I want to go <laughs> Are you compost yet? It's going to take several weeks at the shortest. It may take longer than that since I'm not really doing proper hot composting. But uh, so that's that's one is I'm just really excited to watch the stuff break down. Um, but it was good. Yeah, I was excited. The, the bin was pretty easy to put together, which is one of the reasons that I went with the one I went with. And so it is out there. I've put my first load of stuff. I'm not going to lie. I've got some fruit flies out there. So I, I already have some learnings in terms of I realized if I'm putting food scraps in the freezer, I need to make sure that I've cut them down into smaller pieces before mm, yes. I put them in the freezer. Oh gosh, yeah. Able to do it afterwards. Need some sharp knives. Oh so, yeah, or I could keep it in the fridge instead of the freezer. That would be an option. But I did think about that, and I did add in a little more brown materials um, in relation to my green materials once I saw that I had quite a few fruit flies out there. So we'll see if that helps at all. But it wasn't. It's not like they're just. It's not like there's a cloud of bugs around the bin or anything. But when I did peek inside. Uh, they were flying around in there. So, but it's out, it's going, I'm doing it. I'm excited. I hope some of you are doing it with me. We had, I'm so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the encouragement. Uh, We had a a few other people share their, what, what they're doing, whether they've, I know one of our friends, Diane, got the same composting bin as I did. So uh, (gasps) that's so exciting. She's composted before. So this is, she, this is, it's not new for her, but she got the bin. And, um, I know my mom, uh, who's awesome is taking her food waste to her city has a food waste collection program. So she's taken advantage of that. So, uh, and somebody, one of our other listeners shared that she's going to be doing vermicomposting with her class at school. And I'm so excited about that. I thought that was so cool. So thanks for composting or otherwise coming up with a, a food scrap plan with us, friends. We really appreciate it. I'm so proud of everyone. Uh, <laughs> the composting love, it's, it's, it's spreading. And and I think a lot of these people are doing it in, in different ways that best suits them. Mm-hmm. 
um, which is wonderful. Like, you know, if you're into vermiculture, if you're taking your food scraps to a local community, food scrap collection, I know that my brother-in-law and sister-in-law in in the future, um, are, uh, they'll take them to her work where they have composting. So they'll collect things in the fridge. So lots of different options out there. No one right way to compost and everybody's learning together. So that's really exciting. Awesome. All right, Casey. So my question of the week for you tonight has nothing to do with nature, but I promise I'm going to tie it into what we're talking about today. I just want to know a pop culture question for you. What is your favorite alien movie? And I don't mean alien franchise. What is your favorite movie about aliens? It might be the alien franchise. I don't know, but whatever you want. I think it is Independence Day. Ah, I think that's my favorite alien movie. Um, I'm not necessarily always the like rah rah america woo person but that movie makes me more patriotic than like literally any other movie does that's like historically based it just is like oh will smith's in it whom i love and like uh just the speeches in it are great i'm i'm down i'm down for it that was a very close (laughs) second for me that was the first one that i thought of bill pullman is the president i love him yes i love him so much and yes when he gives that speech in independence day i'm like yes <laughs> come together <laughs> i'm ready yeah it oh, hypes me up that's so funny that you said that i'm i'm with you 100 i did end up deciding to go with the other will smith alien men in black <laughs> yeah. yes. so uh both of them i like very much and when i went with men in black Despite the cockroach-filled oh, yeah. villain a- that I can barely look at the screen, and he's gnarly. He's, he's uh, like, yeah, <laughs> uh, he's fear-inducing. Like I get that. Yeah, yeah, but but I do remember going to see that movie in theaters, and just Will Smith was so charismatic and charming, and with Tommy Lee Jones, guy. like they mm-hmm. they were so funny together, and I enjoyed it. And Casey, it got me thinking. I feel like, stay with me here, aliens in that movie, you could most closely tie a parallel in to how we talk about invasive species, aka alien invaders, uh, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. So you think about They have aliens, outer space aliens, coming from all over the place. There's all different kinds. They do different things. They have different abilities. Most people have no idea that they're there, but then you have this section of people that knows about them, and they work with them, and they try to make sure that everybody stays safe all together. I think- are you making us men in black right now? Because yes, I, am. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we want oh. everybody to be men in black. That's the difference. We don't want to wipe anybody's memories. That's the one difference between men in black. Yes. And are we like, <laughs> we're like the men in green, like, yes. Yes. And, and yeah, instead of trying to conceal the identity of the aliens, we're trying to spread awareness. We're trying to spread awareness so that we can all work together to coordinate for the good of all living things. I don't know. I I love this. This is great. 
<laughs> I'm talk about, uh, we are going to talk about invasive species tonight. That's going to be the topic of our discussion. So stick around for that. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We are going to be talking about invasive species this evening. And I'll forewarn you right now, if you thought that Men in Black and Independence Day were the only movie references, blockbuster film references I was going to make tonight, you are sorely mistaken. So stay tuned for that. Uh, But let's start off with talking about what we actually mean when we talk about invasive species. This may seem like something that's pretty straightforward. A lot of you listening might think it's pretty obvious from the name, but I actually think it's important to clarify some things about what we mean when we talk about the definition of invasive species. So Casey, can you give us a a quick definition? Sure. Uh, Sarah and I were talking about this, Mm -hmm. how um, my dad and I have been arguing over the (laughs) definition of invasive species because it's pretty relevant in retail horticulture. And I went to schools for this. So I, this is something that you learn in environmental studies one-on-one. So first of all, the first quality of a, uh, invasive species is that it is a species that is non-native to the area that you're talking about. So it may exist in nature elsewhere in its home range where it's doing fine, doing its thing. But when it's introduced to a new area, it becomes non-native or alien, but not all non-native species are then inherently invasive. Invasive species are then further qualified by ones that are going to or are currently causing environmental harm. Um, economic harm is another one. Uh, and then there's another one that's like social harm, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is more of like a human health aspect. Um, although I assume that like, yeah, if aliens were to come down, they <laughs> might cause some social harm. <laughs> um, but that's basically what an invasive species is. It has to be non-native and it has to cause some sort of harm. Yeah. Thanks, Casey. So yeah, we were having a little fun tonight with the play on words, the non-native species invasive species you will sometimes hear referred to as alien species, but uh, a couple of of important points to make there. We will clarify too that invasive species can be any living thing. So we're not just talking about plants here. This can be animals, but again, things like bacteria, even viruses, fungi, anything, any of those organisms can be, I guess, yeah, any of those organisms can be, I think viruses even, right? I don't know. I actually, this was the first thought I had when I read that was, is COVID-19 an invasive species? And I don't think it is because viruses are not technically organisms, right? They are slightly separate, but, um, but I think that we can think of them in sort of a similar sort of way as some of the invasive species that we're thinking about, thinking about parasites and bacteria, um, and how they interrupt ecosystems. The point being, main point being, we're not just talking about animals here, other organisms as well. But the big thing to know is that something can be non-native and not be invasive. So to be classified as an invasive species, these things are going to cause some sort of disturbance. It can also, you can also vary a little bit what you mean when you talk about a native range. So we might say that something is invasive in a country. It might be invasive in a state. It might even be invasive in just a certain area of a state. 
too. So you can kind of change up the, the specific ecosystem uh, that you're talking about. So in, in thinking about some of these things that are non-native, but not invasive, Casey, do you know any examples of that type of thing? Well, first I want to say that this is probably, if you go real hardcore down this pathway, you could argue that lots of things that we don't classify as invasive species because of the harm aspect, the way we use some of these things could possibly float into that harm category. Yeah. But I would think like, for example, crops, like yes. lots of our food, even like domesticated livestock, these are not animals that are escaped out into nature, um, displacing things, eating things in a lot of cases. Although like, for example, wild boar could be escaped invasive species in some areas. Um, but they do just by the way that we've put them there intentionally displace habitat. So lines, but, uh, I do think that like most domesticated crops and things like that, we typically don't think about as invasive species. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's one of the, the big ones. I think one of the ones that I would tend to think of as well, although this falls maybe a little bit under your, your first point too, but we think about a species like the honeybee, which we hear a lot about in the United States. This is not a native species to the United States. They're from Europe, but they've been here for a while. They came over from Europe in the 17th century. They are generally considered to be a beneficial species. So they're going to pollinate a lot of different types of crops. The USDA estimates that honeybees actually increase the value of our crops by more than $15 billion. So they're pretty important, but we have a whole lot of native bees as well that you don't hear Lots. as much about. And the USDA does also note that honeybees can be direct significant competitors of our native bees. So they will specify that honeybees should not be introduced to parks and preserves in areas where you're kind of working to protect that native ecosystem. So there are some blurred lines here and it's interesting. We could do multiple episodes on bees in general. This is a little bit of a conservation pet peeve of mine, the attention that for honeybees, honeybees get yeah, and the just complete lack of awareness on the thousands of species of native bees that we have here in the United States. So more to come yeah. on bees. <laughs> I mean, I just had this conversation maybe today or yesterday with one of the people who uh, I work with, who was like, well, we could get hives for the store, which would be really cool from like an educational standpoint mm -hmm. and could help pollinate a lot of the plants. And I was thinking about all the native bees that we currently see on our plants. And yeah, it, it's important to note that like we classify invasive species from a human perspective. So if you ask other bees, I bet you they think that honeybees are the worst, <laughs> um, but, but for humans, they can help out. Um, there are another example would be of a non-native species that's non-invasive is a lot of plants that you might plant in your backyard. There are a lot of cultivars of them that have been bred to be sterile. So like you plant the seed, it comes up, it does its flower thing. Maybe bees and butterflies land on it. Maybe they don't, but then it doesn't reseed itself in other areas. It just dies back for the year. Or even if it uh, lasts year after year, it's not spreading and displacing native plants. So that would be another non-native, a lot of ornamental plants are that way. Yeah. And that is a good point too. And we can keep that in mind when we talk about some of the characteristics that invasive species typically have later on. 
Okay, so Casey, we know we've got these species now all around us, probably. We've got non-native species that have been here forever. What is the deal then with these invasive species? What's the big deal? Why should we know about them? Why should we care about them? And to sort of give you a mental picture, maybe, I don't know, you can tell me, Casey, if this is too much of a stretch also. Uh, Have you seen the trailer for the new Jurassic World movie, whatever it's called. I don't even know. I don't know what it's called either. (laughs) Uh, Hey, if you've watched it, you're like, oh my gosh, all the old characters are back. That's the one we're talking about. Um, And and I'm really excited. I did not care for the last two of Jurassic Worlds as much, but I'm excited to see this one because I think it's like, basically it seems like the premise is, is that the dinosaurs have escaped the island. They are everywhere. Yep. And, uh, and Andrew and I have been trying to figure out how this happened. What's the timeline on this? What, what's going on? But, uh, yeah, basically, uh, problems with invasive species is a lot of times, once you let the cat out of the bag, so to say, you can't reel them back in. And so they end up disrupting, disrupting those ecosystems, harming things that we care about economically or socially as part of their definition. And then once you've got them out there, a lot of times it's almost impossible to, you know, put them back where they came from or so help me. Right. Like there's no, uh, there's no way to stop it. So this is, yeah. I'm like, would a T-Rex be an invasive species? Probably not. But some of those tiny dinosaurs, I think there's a case that could be made that like, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk about why. That but, uh, was, they well, run around. It was literally all I could think about while watching <laughs> that trailer was this is this is invasive species. And would dinosaurs actually be invasive species by the definition? Would we have to change the definition of invasive species uh-huh. Uh-huh. to include animals that are not just out of their own native environment, but out of their own time? <laughs> These are things that ran through my head while I was watching the trailer. But I think, and there's a line in the trailer where one of the characters says we've created an ecological disaster. And that kind of, Casey, is what, what you were alluding to. It is hard. Yeah, once once we've let these species out, if we, ha- I mean, yeah, I don't know the timeline or how the Jurassic World would not work in real life, everybody. But looking at it through the lens of these of these dinosaurs, if we if that happened, if we had all of these dinosaurs out running around, that's going to be a real hard thing to fix and put back together so that everything in the ecosystem is kind of going to be in balance. So if you think about it that way, that is the same kind of thing that we think about with invasive species. It might not be as noticeable to you in your day in and day out life, but these invasive species do cause that kind of imbalance in their ecosystems. And a lot of times there is a lot of, remember that that, those men in black running around, there's a lot of people doing a lot of work and spending a lot of money (laughs) to make sure so much money (laughs) that you are not seeing the results of these invasive species. So invasive species cost Uh, This is, I believe this is globally, an estimated $1.4 trillion every year. That is an annual expenditure, and that comes from both damage that can be as a result of invasive species, but also the cost of trying to manage 
these invasive species. So Casey, you kind of touched on a little bit of this already, but what are some of the maybe specific ways that invasive species cause damage? Because yes, it's not going to be dinosaurs jumping out of the water and tearing down fishing boats or whatever, but what are the ways that invasive species do cause damage? There's a lot of different ways. So um, first, that ecological damage is typically has to do with outcompeting native species, number one. So if there's like another species that maybe has the same diet with as them or a similar habitat preference or niche in that particular environment, they can end up being better competitors than that native animal mm-hmm. and reduce their populations, reduce diversity within the ecosystem. Um, but also they might be so much better that they end up eating uh, other species and reducing the populations of those prey species. So, or plant species, depending on what they feed on. So that would be, I think the top ones that I think of when I think of like conservation implications for invasive species, but obviously there's, there's more right, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I agree in terms of disrupting the environment, that's one of the big things. Yeah. They're either going to outcompete native species or they are going to consume and destroy populations of native species. We talked about the de- within the definition, there are other considerations in terms of an invasive species. So causing harm to food crops and then also being vectors for disease. So maybe a a virus itself wouldn't be an invasive species, but it could be introduced via invasive species and not just viruses, other, uh, other types of disease, both human, animal, and plant diseases can be spread through the introduction of invasive species. Do you mind if we do a couple examples for some of these that help kind of illustrate? So for vectors of disease, you can think about, sorry to break it to you, but lots of cats and dogs can be considered invasive species Mm -hmm. in lots of parts of the world. So for example, uh, feral dogs in Asia carry um, canine distemper. And so because they're not all vaccinated against it, like a lot of pet dogs, at least in our area, although lots of them aren't too, um, they can pass it on to native species like raccoons here, but also red pandas, which are an endangered species in Asia and lots of other animals can catch those as well. Um, for one that's both out competing at native wildlife and eating native wildlife, several species of invasive snakes out there. Yeah. Um, the one I thought of first was Burmese pythons, okay. which are invasive <laughs> down in Florida yep. because they did some studies and found that Um, Burmese pythons tend to target mammal species as their prey. And so in some of the parks where they were doing population data on like raccoons and foxes and like things that we consider really common, like rabbits, they were finding a decimated population where their populations had crashed 90% in in parts where snakes had uh, been introduced. Yeah. And higher than that for some species, and higher right? Than Even that. like Absolutely. 99% of, I can't remember if yep. that was raccoons or which. Yeah. It's one of those species, small but... mammal species, which is yeah. crazy. And here on the outline, you have brown tree snake. Do you want yeah. to talk a little bit about those? Because so, that's a story. Yeah. So the, the brown tree snake was introduced into the island of Guam, which as you can imagine, introducing a species to an island, there's nowhere for these other right. animals to go. So Speaking of decimating populations, the native bird population of Guam was destroyed by these brown tree snakes. And there are species that now exist only in the care of humans because they were so wiped out by the brown tree snakes. So when we are saying ecological disaster, we mean it like they're wiping out populations. 
So and, yeah, and go ahead. Fuzzy, fuzzy, scaly, plant-based, whatever. Like it, it's mm-hmm. not a lot of times we'll, we'll see a lot of attention brought to the snakes. And I think that's partially because we're, um, predisposed to having anti-snake bias mm-hmm. in our society. Um, but cats kill billions of birds. So these are, and this is where that number $1.4 trillion, while it's like a crazy number also like, I wonder how many dollars or cents they put on each songbird. Like to us, maybe the songbird has a certain uh, economic worth, but for that songbird's population, if it's decimated because of cats, like what is the dollar amount you can put on extinction? I'm just mm-hmm. not really sure what, like how we can classify that. For sure. So let's let's talk about a few things that are going to help. So we've, we, we we've talked about the damage that they can cause. We've given you a couple examples. We'll talk about a few more examples of invasive species as we go along. What makes these species successful as invasive species? Why might a species become invasive as opposed to just being a non-native? Does does that make sense? What are are some qualities that you would say predispose a species to to causing this damage or to taking over in this way. Sure. So we like drop a species off on an Island. What traits would it have from it ranging from just immediately dying out to (laughs) taking over the entire thing? So I think, um, really successful invasive species first and foremost are very good at reproducing quickly. So animals take different strategies to reproduce. You can think of like the elephant that's like, I'm putting a lot of time and effort into having one baby, but that baby's going to live 70 years and produce lots of babies over its lifetime, but it's going to take a long time versus rabbits, which would be a classic example. So it's just like, ding, 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 ding. (laughs) If you dropped a couple of, even if they were the same size, if you dropped a couple of elephants on an island, it would be a whole lot easier to solve that issue than if you dropped a couple of rabbits or rodents even again even if they were all the same size but if they kept the reproductive rate of each of those species you can imagine which ones would be harder or easier so yeah typically invasive species are going to have a fast growth and or reproductive rate and it's going to be especially like that's one of the reasons it's hard to then stop them because even if there's just remnant populations left over, mm-hmm. even if you try and pick up every bunny out there, if you miss a couple within a year, there's going to be many, many, many more. Right. So I think part of it also is that um, it, it depends on the current state of the ecosystem. So one of the reasons invasive species take hold is because in a lot of ways we've disrupted natural ecosystems just by humans coming in the area. And so you have an area that's like maybe disturbed in a way that's ready for secession to take place where new plant species are going to establish species who kind of thrive on the edge zones. They've are, it's basically like if you have two fighters and one of them's already been knocked to to their back leg and they're a little bit off balance, it's a lot easier to shove them over the edge if you've got another good competitor in that area. So that would be another way that the environment might invite in a native species. I guess that's not a good quality of a native species. What else do we got? No, but I think that's a good, it's a, it's a good, it's something that maybe not a characteristic of the species itself, but something that would assist in an invasive species to get established for sure. Yeah. So if they don't have any natural predators in the area, whether it's for that reason, Casey, whether it's because something has already thrown the ecosystem 
out of whack or if it's just an area where there aren't maybe any other large predators and then you've set this predator in there they're going to be able to take take over and they have to be adaptable enough and this is you know something that we may talk about a little bit later too but you know when we talk about invasive species or alien species this is not an insult to the species these species are adaptable like these species are able to thrive in an environment that is not their own they are take have been taken somehow which we'll talk about in a minute from their native range and plunked down in an area where they don't have their natural food sources they might not have their natural habitat cover or that sort of thing and they just figure out how to do it so i think adaptability is a good characteristic that invasive species would have it might also, again, not necessarily with the species themselves, but have to do with the habitat that they're in. So it might be easier, and this depends on the species, but it might be easier for species to adapt in an environment like Florida than, say, I don't know, northern Indiana. <laughs> so there might be a larger number of species that could uh, establish themselves in a perhaps more mild climate than one that's going to have those harsh seasons that they'll have to adapt to. Again, obviously that depends on the species and where they're coming from too. But as you may have guessed, we do have several challenges with invasive species down here in Florida. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is um, something that gets talked about in legislation as well, because there are some folks who would like to legislate certain species that are kept as pets that um, are invasive in Florida, Burmese pythons being one of them, but also like tegus you can find mm -hmm. in, in Georgia, crazy amounts of things in Florida though. Iguanas. Um, yeah, iguanas. Yeah. Green iguanas. So um, people want to legislate basically saying you can't take these animals across state lines because they become invasive species. And the other side of the argument, um, and obviously there's lots of other components in the argument, but the other side of the argument is why does it matter if I take a Burmese Python from Rhode Island to Massachusetts? Because if it gets out worst case scenario, it's not going to survive the winter. It's not going to be an invasive species here. So that's where, yeah, it definitely depends on the area that they go into on whether or not particularly cold-blooded species, but lots of different animals are yeah. going to thrive or die. Yeah. So let's talk about, that's a good start to the next topic then. Invasive species need a way to get to these new areas. And oh, as you might have guessed, that's, that's where we come in, good old human beings. So Casey, what are, so, do you love how I'm just asking you all of the questions tonight? No, it's fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what are some of the ways that invasive species spread? Um, well, first, I think you're tapping it into, because all of these answers are basically going to tap into another element of invasive mm -hmm. species that I don't think we've quite talked about yet, which is a sort of a characteristic of a species being invasive versus a species naturally migrating to a new Good habitat. Point. Because th this happens all the time. Species range, contract, expand, change over time based on, on different resources. If they find themselves naturally in an area and they take over, is that an invasive species, even though they might cause the extinction of another species just by the natural course of things, yeah. right? This is a great point and something, mm -hmm. yeah, it's something that I thought about while writing this too. And that's something I think that's going to become even more and more of a question with climate change. Yeah. As that changes. Absolutely. Traditional or historic habitats of different species. So it's a good point. Right. So there's a lot of questions of native versus non-native, but for invasives, 
that's where the question really like becomes important is because there's damage involved. It's not just like, well, was it here naturally? Was it not? When did dingoes get here? I don't know. When do they become natural? When do they not? It's like, nope, these are now taking root. Typically all of the ways that we're talking about are human assisted transportation. They are not like humans are taking these species from one spot to another. It is not a bird flying to a new place. It is typically something's happening. So, um, something that hits close to home here is Pennsylvania has been the site of several insects traveling on generally cargo across countries' borders and accidentally getting released here. So the spotted lanternfly, which is, I believe native to Japan, it might also be native to China was introduced just a couple years ago outside, um, of Philadelphia. And these guys just exploded everywhere and they will feed off of native tree species and um, compete with other insects. So there is a huge campaign in Pennsylvania to smush them. That's the best way to do it is just smush all of these uh, spotted lanternflies. And they're really pretty insects on them their own. Like you feel a little bit bad because of how beautiful they are, but then you remember, no, (laughs) I love trees. Gotta smush them. (laughs) So a lot of times it is accidentally hitchhiking or, um, being transported, whether it's on plants or in, in cargo, cause we live in a global globalized trade system that that's just going to sometimes happen. Yeah. So you can have hitchhikers that might just like physically attach to, yeah, whether that's plants or you, you'll hear campaigns about like, don't move your firewood and things like that. Right. That's because of invasive species. So, uh, yeah, they might attach on objects shoes, clothes, pets, and then get brought to a new location. Ballast water was a really big one for a while in terms of, like you just said, this is where a global environment. And so ships will take on and release water to kind of balance out with their cargo, keep the ships stable as they're going from place to place. So taking in water in one location and then releasing it at their destination location you could have all manner of organisms hanging out in that that ballast water. So that's been a big one. And yeah, one that hits close to home from where I grew up and spent most of my life in, in the Great Lakes region in northern Indiana. Zebra mussels is a big one. If you live around the Great Lakes, you're probably familiar with zebra mussels and quagga mussels as well that have taken over. Like they are, they're just there. And we'll talk about this, that there's, there's not much to be done uh, about that anymore. And that initially came from Bellis Water. There is, I think, more and more legislation that's being developed for that one. So folks trying to, to really crack down on that. And that one's a little bit easier to regulate. Like there are less people yeah. with boats than there are with shoes, you know, like even, even just like less people with boats than there are people who maybe travel on airplanes. Like a lot of times when you travel from one area to another, like to Hawaii, for example, they will have you clean your shoes or, um, New Zealand's very specific because that's another Island nation to try and make sure that you're preventing that spread. Um, and then, yeah, if you're recreationally or transport using a boat, spraying off your boat in between different places that you go and, and, legislation coming in to make sure that that's required is a really important component. Another one that you have on here is intentional. Well, there's accidental and there's intentional release, right? So accidental and intentional release also, I think have a certain gray area in the middle of them (laughs) too. So 
um, a lot of invasive species are former pets, right? Like they, they're brought in for one purpose, which is keeping them inside your house and then let out because of either, oops, I lost it, or I don't really want that anymore. <laughs> so I've heard kind of both stories for the Burmese python. Yeah, I think both contributed yeah. to it, is, is my understanding, is that kind of the best we can figure is that Burmese pythons became established in Florida, that probably some of them were pets. Some of them may have accidentally got out. Some of them may have been released intentionally. These snakes get very large and people are not prepared to deal with them. And so they're just like, I'm just going to let it go and it'll be fine. I think a lot of folks maybe now feel that 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 may not have been enough to build an established population that we now have, unfortunately, here in South Florida. So there is also thought that Hurricane Andrew, which uh, back in the early 90s, I guess, destroyed a breeding facility now. So here's where, again, that regulations could come into play. Should they have been allowed to, you know, be breeding Burmese pythons here. Do we need to be doing that? That's a, that's a whole other podcast, but there was this, this devastating storm that allowed these pythons to get released. That was not intentional by this facility that still led to these very detrimental consequences to the South Florida ecosystem. So maybe a little bit of both mixed in uh, with with the Burmese pythons. My favorite thing though, that I came across, I don't know if you knew this one, Casey, or if, if this is maybe just me being late to the party, but another example of a specific intentional release, the, the starling. Yes. <laughs> which So we, we call this, at least here in the United States, we call this the European starling because it's not native here. It's native to Europe. Do you know why the starling was released? A guy like Shakespeare way too much is my understanding of it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Starlings were intentionally released in the 1890s in New York as a, this guy wanted to have, I guess, have a have all population the or a presence of yeah, every yeah. bird mentioned by Shakespeare in the United States. What? Wild. What a strange reason. Like, hey, I was an English major and an environmental studies major, so I get, like, loving books, but sir, (laughs) good sir, what? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Oh, that would blew my mind. That was a mistake. Yeah, that was a mistake. I forgot you were an English major, too. Of course you know that story. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they released in in 1890 in New York, and they were in California, observed in California by 1942. So those starlings wasted no time. Very, again, successful, depending on how you want to look at it, invasive species. Um, and so you've probably seen them. These these are these great big flocks of dark birds. They're super cool to watch when they fly in these big clouds of uh, of birds. But uh, yeah, those are an invasive species here in the United States. They compete with native birds such as bluebirds, species of woodpeckers, purple martins uh, for nesting cavities. And they can I think they're they can be destructive of, of crops as well. So so now you know that was my favorite thing that I learned while researching this episode was the reason for European starling release. There are other 
intentional releases though and even there have been scientists that like we've released species in order to control other species in the past so uh, but that was just one of the more perhaps unique reasons for uh, introduction that I found yes humans can listen one dude like Shakespeare too much now we have starlings everywhere um but yeah forever (laughs) and then um the kudzu which is an extremely invasive species in the southern u.s was introduced to control erosion so it was an intentional Mm -hmm. introduction help control erosion on areas um if you burn kudzu down it will come back that is kudzu and then yeah when you're talking about to control other species i believe that's the story of the cane toad in australia um, they I had so, cane yeah. beetles out there and they were like, oh, we'll just do these. These toads are a natural predator in their ecosystem. Uh, so we'll just introduce these toads. Turns out these toads have like 30,000 babies and are poisonous at all life stages and now are everywhere in Australia. So another extremely, uh, extremely successful invasive species that there's not really coming back from. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How do we come back? <laughs> from invasive species what what's kind of the what are our options here and of course the first and best option is to never let them come in the first place that's the prevention and that's why we're talking about this again we all want to be kind of part of that men in black we want to know know what's happening be responsible choose our pets wisely make sure that we are cleaning off our shoes and our clothes and uh you know being aware of where and when these might be issues um being responsible with the plants that we're choosing to plant in our yards all of those types of things prevention is the best and the most cost effective method of dealing with invasive species is just don't ever let them come next would be eradication if you can you have to catch it early. So you'll read, if you start reading about invasive species, you'll read about EDRR, which is early detection and rapid response. And that is what you basically need to have to have any chance at eradication. Again, remember why these species are so successful, that fast growth and reproductive reproductive rate, not a lot of natural means in the environment of limiting their uh, so, so not a lot of predators basically limiting the population growth in the wild. So you got to catch them early and, and be ready to get rid of them. And after that, basically the best that you can hope to do. So with a lot of these invasive species that we've talked about tonight, containment is the best that you can do. So if you've got an invasive species in a certain area, making sure that it doesn't spread beyond that certain area is going to be part of it. So we'll talk about, or you you might think about carp species. Again, I'm kind of biased towards the Great Lakes region here because that's, that's where I grew up. But so there are um, several species of carp that are native to Asia that are established in like the Mississippi River that we are working to keep out of the Great Lakes system. So these fish can consume nearly half of their body weight uh, each day. So they would be extremely detrimental to fishing, boating, recreation uh, on the the Great Lakes. And so 
this, I mean, this has been going on for years where we know that they're established and we're working to keep them out of the Great Lakes. And I found an article from just last year, about a, a year ago, that uh, announced a project, this is a joint kind of venture between Illinois and Michigan, working to keep these fish out of the Great Lakes at a price tag of $858 million. <laughs> And they're setting up things like electric currents and like, bubble curtains and things like that oh, to try wow. to keep these fish out. So the longer a species is present, obviously the bigger the population gets, the harder control is going to be and the more expensive it's going to be typically as well. And I, I think like, again, this is a thing where this $858 million project would not be happening if it didn't have direct human implications. If this was just harming the ecosystem of the Great Lakes and we didn't use the Great Lakes for fishing, tourism, recreation, etc., this would not be a project that anyone would be investing in. And so there are areas of our world that people just have said not worth um, doing this. I think like a lot of, of areas that are maybe not thought of as like natural areas. We just allow invasive species to happen and kill off native species because it's not directly impacting yeah. humans at this time. And it at might. This time. Yep. We don't know what the long-term consequences again, this is, it's throwing the ecosystem out of whack and there's going to be a train chain reactions, ripple reactions to that too. But yeah, you're right. And it is, it's, that's the, I feel like the problem with a lot of conservation issues is it's until we see how it's directly impacting us until it feels relevant to us and crisis mode yeah so how right? how like, do we that's that's what we're trying to do here guys is to to help folks get to that point before we're in crisis mode like to recognize that these things matter even if it's not directly impacting your life today that this, yeah. these things are still important. And we treat kind of both sides of like both containment, eradication, et cetera, of invasive species and the decline and extinction of native species in the same way. We wait till they hit a threshold a lot mm -hmm. of times before we actually put resources in them, which unfortunately is the most expensive and least yes. effective way to do either one of those things. So, so we really do have to be very preemptive. This is why science is important. It's important to know what the baseline is. It's important to know population models of what species are at a time, because you need to know if a new species gets introduced to that area, what was the baseline population so that you can know exactly how it is causing that ecological harm yes. faster rather than waiting to be like, well, <laughs> I guess we got to do a baseline population and wait five years and see how that's different. It's like, nope, we can figure it out um, sooner. So yeah. it's important to invest in those programs at all times, not just when we're seeing a problem. Yeah. And that's one more thing to, to mention about how to kind of handle invasive species too is 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 sort of controlling them where they're at like recognizing that there's no no hope for eradication for a lot of these species but if we do know if we do kind of have our baseline for what the healthy ecosystem or the healthy population of native species look like then we can maybe shoot for something that i've seen termed called functional eradication so how can we work to keep this invasive species 
down at a level low enough where, okay, it's here. We know it's here, but we're not seeing those detrimental effects to the native species as well. Um, so something like that might be lionfish. Uh, lionfish are an uh, invasive species. Again, okay, off the coast here. <laughs> but, uh, but there are uh, programs in place that like teach fishermen how, or, or even just teach locals how to catch them. And, you know, they can actually prepare them and, and eat them. Which sort of brings us to a whole other topic in terms of invasive species is, is that sort of moral, ethical <laughs> struggle of hunting, collecting, you know, like right. you're talking about with the, what was it, the lanternfly? The lanternfly, yeah. To, you're just supposed to, to squish them. Yep. Um, you know, so it, there are a whole lot of conversations to be had around invasive species, but that, that kind of functional errat- er- eradication method I wanted to at least mention. I think that like this also, we talked about viruses a little bit. It reminds me a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic. First, we tried to prevent it from spreading everywhere and we tried to get rid of it by contain, and then we tried to contain it. And then we tried to get into the control to know what is, what we're never going to get rid of COVID-19 as a disease, but what levels can we live with? What levels can can we hit a certain threshold and then say, okay, we need to go into a next level, um, mode of, of trying to contain it again, like figuring all of this out, you're having trouble trying to figure out how this works over like the spread of something as big as the United States. I think thinking about it as a pandemic metaphor is kind of helpful in that way. Yeah. Thanks for the illustration. So, yeah, there's a lot of conversations that could be had uh, around all of these topics. And there's a lot of nuance uh, in these conversations as well. Like I mentioned before, these animals are not the villains. I don't hate Burmese pythons. I don't hate brown tree snakes. I don't hate starlings. Uh, you know, I, they're just not where they were originally found and they are doing what they've got to do um, to survive. And there are even folks, you can find articles out there where folks will talk about invasive species potentially having some benefits as well. I was reading an article about uh, bird species in Hawaii where native species have declined or have gone extinct and these non-native species are fulfilling some of those same roles to the benefit of some of the forest habitats in Hawaii. So you can look at it that way, but it's interesting. Almost any species is going to have some positive and some negative. So how do you kind of evaluate and is it, you know, but I, right. I do think there's a lot of interesting things to be thought of around this topic. Oh, right. I mean, the counter argument to to some of this from someone who maybe doesn't see inherent value to diversity of like biodiversity of life on earth um, is that if it doesn't harm humans, why should we spend money on doing anything about it? The ecosystem will right itself after a while. It will, uh, it will return to balance as it, as it did in, in kind of this system that you're talking about where and these birds have kind of taken over the role and they're filling this niche that it, it was absent. Um, and that's true to, to some extent. Obviously, it's going to be upheaval in the meantime. 
I think that there's, it's worth thinking about our personal responsibility when we introduce a Mm -hmm. species into a new area to say, this wouldn't have happened if we hadn't gotten involved in the first place. So I think we bear some responsibility in preserving the native species, but just even from a, even again, if you don't care about all of that, um, having biodiversity on, on earth is important because it helps us be more resilient to disaster. Um, if we are homogenized across all the different places on earth, we have the same setup of species and a disease comes through or a particular disaster that that species isn't capable of surviving happens, then we're going to have way more mass casualties than if we have that biodiversity. Think about it, like we've talked about this in the past on on a genetic level, right? If you have genetic uniformity, genetic bottlenecks, that's going to make that population so much more susceptible. That's the set you could almost think of it as ecological uh, bottleneck, you know, if when these ecosystems get thrown so out of whack like that. It's also just wonderful to have lots, so many, like share a planet with so many wonderful different species and, and they have a home and, and you know, having them have that opportunity to compete at a level without a species that didn't ask to be there, (laughs) didn't fly themselves on an airplane down, down to that new area. That was us. That was us. So taking responsibility for that. Yeah. So hopefully that has inspired you enough to, to want to join our version of men in black here and work to protect our, our valuable ecosystems. And uh, if that is the case, stick around, we'll wrap up here in just a minute and we'll give you some challenges for how you can prevent the spread of invasive species. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to give you some challenges. Hopefully you enjoyed. Hopefully you learned something about invasive species. That's going to be my first challenge for you, though, is to get invested in learning a little bit more about invasive species, in particular, ones that are invasive around where you live. Again, to all of our wonderful folks who are listening from outside of the United States, most of what we talked about tonight and are the most familiar with is going to be here in the United States, but obviously invasive species happen all around the world. So get familiar with invasive species in your state, country, territory, area, some things that might be um, more immediately applicable to you where you live. So there are lots of resources. I didn't even put a specific website on this because honestly, you might be best served by just doing a Google search, but there are lots of both governmental and NGO websites that will pop up that have different lists of invasive species, depending on where you live. Yeah. To add on to that, um, hey, we've been talking about a lot of Asian species, this particular podcast, they're in the similar latitude to us, which is, I think why we get a lot of similar, like species from Asia that do well in the States is because Mm -hmm. we have a similar climate in that way. And they end up competing. I would love to know Asian listeners, if you have American species as invasive species, if you're listening from any other country, I would just love to know that, like, 
what do we have that we're just throwing out there? Um, because we obviously have our, uh, America bias here, seeing what's around us. And they tend to be from, from a lot of other countries, European starlings, again, same sort of latitude. So yeah, first thing, learn more about the invasive species near you. Second thing is something that we can all do to, to do our part to kind of prevent the spread. And that's to be mindful or thoughtful about what plants you might be using in your garden. Casey, I don't know if you have more to add to this in particular, but I will say there are invasive plants that you can go to a big box store and just purchase plants that are an invasive species. You can go to your local independent garden center and purchase invasive species. States are starting to put in a little bit of legislation on for instance, in both Indiana and Pennsylvania, they've just outlawed the Japanese barberry for commercial sale. Um, bamboo has been running. Bamboo has been illegal in Pennsylvania for a long time. <laughs> um, and we've got a huge patch of it in my backyard because of it. So if it's something important to you, we'll definitely have lots of conversations eventually about the minutia of native, non-native, invasive, but there are some pretty big offenders that you can find. And one of the the great resources for that would be the Audubon Society. They have like bird-friendly and then not bird-friendly invasive species on their list. So you could at least avoid the big ones on on their list. That's where I would go for that. Uh, And then of course, the third one just relates to some of the other examples of invasive species that we talked about tonight is to Be responsible about choosing your pets and taking care of your pets. We don't want to be contributing to any intentional release of non-native animals. So if you are wanting to get a pet, make sure that you really do know what goes into the care and that you are prepared to provide all of the requirements for said pet for the length of time that that pet is going to be alive. I don't care if it's a goldfish, don't release your goldfish outside. So make sure that you're being responsible on the front end when you're getting a pet and that you do not ever release a pet into the wild. Look, we're not in the business of shaming people who don't have the information. That is not where we're at. If you feel bad about the time that when you were a kid and let things go, like it, it happens, but Pretend you're looking deep into my eyes right now. If you are listening to this podcast already and you have a snake or a cat or a goldfish at home that you really don't turtle, that's another one that you don't want anymore. Please try and find a rescue. Please try and find a responsible home for it. Please do not put it back out into an environment because you now have the knowledge and I, I will shame you if necessary. <laughs> that's what's going to make you you uh, not go for it because that's, it's, it's such a big deal. Um, those little actions that we have, have, that's the disease vector. That's the displacement of native species when we, we do things like that. So you have the knowledge, you are empowered, be responsible. Go men <laughs> in green or whatever. Yes. We're Gosh, Uh, we can just be like the eco men in black or something because green probably doesn't look very good as a suit, but put on those sunglasses, feel, (laughs) feel empowered to help invite and fight invasive species. Thanks for everyone who's listening, who already does that. 
Hey, Kristen, I see you. I know what you're doing. We're proud of you. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Again, if you have any questions for us, any comments, any feedback, any suggestions for future episode topics, there's a whole bunch of ways that you can get in touch with us. Now, we are on Facebook. Just search for A Little Greener Podcast. We are on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. We are on Twitter at A Greener Podcast uh just different names everywhere just follow and us you and you'll can, never have to look it up again that's there right you, and you can send us an email at a little greener podcast at gmail.com and we do always love hearing from you casey thanks so much for the discussion tonight thanks for bearing with me on all my pop culture references tonight <laughs> hey that's what makes it fun right like that's bringing in all the the culture right making it relevant for the folks at home (laughs) yeah (laughs) so and thanks for our listeners for listening thanks for taking time out of your day whether you're driving or doing dishes or whatever we appreciate you listening and um and and we'll talk to you next week bye